This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. It's always a privilege to be here where we can open up God's Word freely and have God's Word come to us and engage with us. So this, mo- this afternoon as we look at Matthew 12, I want to ask you this question. How is your heart doing? How is your heart doing? You've heard me right. I- I'm not saying, how are you feeling? I'm not asking whether you have a heart pacer, how many times it beats. I'm asking, how is your heart doing? Cardia, or heart in English, in the Bible, is actually the core of our being, the center where our physical, our emotional, our intellectual, our moral activities come forth. That's how it's being used very often in the Bible. Jesus says in today's passage, the mouth speaks forth what the heart is full of. The mouth speaks forth what the heart is full of. So how is your heart doing today? Last week, we considered how our view of Jesus affects our response to Jesus. This afternoon, we want to look at kind of the same question, but in a different angle. And that is, our response to Jesus reveals the condition of our hearts. Let me say that again. Our response to Jesus reveals the condition of the center of our being, the place where our intellectual, our uh, emotional, our moral activities work on. So shall we do this by asking God to help us uh, before we plunge into Matthew 12? Will you pray with me? Father, as we are reminded last week how important it is to have a right view of Jesus, help us this week to recognize that our response to the words and works of Jesus will review the condition of our hearts, the very center of our being. Help us to do this today. Amen. If you have your survival kit or the Bible passage uh, there, I invite you to keep it open because I'll look at it um, very often and I will not put most of the passage up there so that we can look at the, our own Bibles and um, even write or engage with it. But let me begin by reading chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. Then the Pharisees saw this. They said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, last, the last words of Jesus last week in chapter 11 was that heavy yoke was placed on the Jews because of the law and especially on the interpretation of the law, that it was heavy on people. And we get a perfect illustration in the beginning of chapter 12. Jesus' disciples, they were walking along the grains, their kind of stomach growls, I don't know whether you're growling your stomach. And they stop, to stop the growling, they look around, they saw kind of grains and they start to pick some grains, they kind of wrap off the shaft or the shell and they pop it in to kind of eat so that the growling stops. And lo and behold, they were watched by careful eyes of the Pharisees, the guardians of the law, or so they thought. And they called to Jesus, Aha, look, 
Look at your disciples. They are working on Sabbath, the day of rest. They are breaking the law. You know, the religious leaders, they, they would interpret the, the disciples' um, plucking of grains as kind of harvesting. You kind of harvest. They're kind of getting off the shell. Ah, that's trashing the floor. And as they eat, say, there you go. They are, they are working. How dare your disciples work on the Sabbath? Now, before we jump in, I want you to appreciate the culture, uh, the Jewish culture or the religious culture. Now they are under the Roman Empire. Their culture is kind of Greek culture. And the thing that really differentiates them or the Jews' view is the law and the Sabbath. Because that is the thing that differentiates them from the rest under the Roman Empire. They keep the Sabbath, they keep the law. And the law is so important that they even feel that if they keep the law enough, God will rescue them perhaps from their enemies. Or God might even send the Messiah to kind of save them. So law was very important. But how did the disciples eating of grains break the law? Well, the truth is the, the scripture never says that that means breaking the law. But the Pharisees saw it as their role to interpret the millennium old law since the time of Moses, a long time ago, to apply it to today's culture. If you look at our, our friends who study law, they don't just study the laws, right? They study case laws and then case laws after case laws so that they can interpret the original intent of the law. So the Pharisees saw that that was kind of their job to kind of create a mountain of case laws, including this one, to interpret to make sure that no one breaks the law. But they've met the wrong person because when they come to Jesus, Jesus disagrees with their case law and challenged them. In fact, Jesus challenged that they have missed the original intent of God's purpose for setting up Sabbath. In fact, he brings up two cases. Look at the first case with me in verse 3 to 4. Jesus said this, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do but only for the priests. Now, if, if you are a Jew, Leviticus, where the laws are all kept, it says that this consecrated bread that David ate belongs only to the priests, to the line of Aaron and his sons, and not for anyone else. In fact, this is the most holy part of their share of the food offerings offered to God. But in the record of 1 Samuel 21, David was kind of, running away with his companions. They were hungry and they ate the bread. But scripture has never condemned David for doing so. In fact, David didn't even just eat it. He gave it to his companions, but he didn't do it out of disrespect for God. He did that because he was hungry and the priest gave it to him. In fact, the priest, when he was willing to give it to David, in a sense, he kind of encompassed that in the law, mercy is being embedded in it. And when the Pharisees heard Jesus, they were kind of lost for words. They kind of look at the disciples who were kind of trying to finish chewing the last beat and kind of swallow it. And they can't say anything. But Jesus didn't stop there. He carried on with the next case. Look at verse 5. Jesus goes on, Or haven't you read in the law that a priest on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrated the Sabbath and yet are innocent? Jesus adds on a contradiction, something about Sabbath back then. You know, Pharisees, you say that 
Sabbath is the day of rest and no one is supposed to work, guess who are the ones that desecrate this law most often? The priests. Why? Because while you say everyone must rest, the priests are there trying to kill the lamb and kind of slaughter them and kind of blood splashing out to offer sacrifice because that's what God asked the priests to do. And no one will ever say that the priests are going against the Sabbath. And what does that mean? Jesus is pointing out, your scripture has already told you that serving in the temple or serving God far exceeds the Sabbath. So while these two kind of didn't match together, no one would say that the, the, the priests are guilty. They say that they've done the right thing. So forget about your do's and don'ts. And then Jesus turned to the Pharisee and pointed out the right intent of the Sabbath and how the Pharisees have turned it around. He pointed out at least two things here. First is that serving in a temple supersedes Sabbath. Jesus says in verse 6 to 8, if you look at it, that in fact, you know what? One greater than temple is standing in front of you. In fact, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And do you come to me and demand that I conform to your demands? Will you come to me and put the heavy yoke you have on my disciples? I will not dance to your music. Neither will my followers. And the second thing that, that Jesus points to the Pharisees was this, that the heart of Sabbath is mercy more than sacrifice. It's mercy more than sacrifice. Jesus looked right into the hearts of the Pharisees and what he sees, outwardly they're practicing religiosity, but outwardly they don't look superior, but inwardly they have worms. They do not turn their hearts to God. Instead, they want to take the place of God. And that's where verse 7 says, they will condemn those innocent, even those that God deems innocent. And look at what Jesus says in verse 7. Jesus actually quotes Hosea. Let me read this to you. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Now what does Jesus mean by this, if you had known? Surely the Pharisees know Jesus was quoting Hosea. The problem is that it's not about their lack of understanding. It's the, it's the unwillingness to accept and receive these words. So let me give us the context of what Jesus says of Hosea's um, passage. In fact, this is taken from Hosea 6. Let me read to you and you'll see what was the surrounding context when Jesus said this. This is what Hosea 6 says. This is talking, God talking to Judah and Israel or Ephraim. Your love is like morning mist like the early dew that disappears and goes on. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. A moradia or raiders lie in ambush for a victim. So do bands of priests. They murder on the road of second, carrying out their wicked schemes. <laughs> you know, as Jesus quoted this, the Pharisees who are familiar with the scripture is hearing what Jesus is saying about them. They're using their religiosity not for mercy, not to acknowledge God, not to honor the Lord of the Sabbath. They're using religiosity for their personal status and for the personal gain. Am I reading a bit too much to it? Let's look at the rest of the passage and see whether this is the case. Look, look on, look at verse 9. Going on from that place, he went to their synagogue 
The man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. They come and ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? You know, they, what is happening is they're actually not accepting what Jesus is saying, right? Jesus just said, I deserve, I deserve mercy, not sacrifice. And this, is it, is it lawful to do this healing on Sabbath? They're looking for reasons to kind of accuse Jesus. But as if they kind of haven't learned their lesson, Jesus kind of give them another quote of their day-to-day practice and, you, know, you guys pick up the animals if it's stuck, you know, it falls off on Sabbath. So, right after that, he says, he heals the man right in front of them. He says, it glorifies God to do good, isn't it? And by now, the Pharisees were kind of lost for words. They, they can't refute Jesus' words. You know, God had done a merciful thing in their religious, religious place of worship. And how apt it is, isn't it, to praise God. But instead, the Pharisees they actually went out and they started to plot how they might kill Jesus. You know, a great occasion to praise God become their occasion to murder the Son of God. Jesus refused to dance their music. Jesus refused to conform to their religious structure. And since Jesus would not bow or agree with them, then he must die. That's what the Pharisees are kind of pointing to. Either conform or be condemned. They have done it to all the Jews, and Jesus will be no exception. No one must stand against their religiosity, not even God. I just want to pause here as we kind of travel with Jesus and the Pharisees. I want to ask the question again, how are your and my hearts doing? As we reflect on Jesus, the Pharisees, as we reflect on the Sabbath, we're going to ask, how is your and my heart doing? You know, as a church level, how is how much is our gathering an expression of mercy or opportunity to express mercy? You no, know, there comes a time where our liturgy or even our tradition, even good ones, become so important that we are not willing to show mercy if that means we have to move or be different in our tradition. Is it so important? That mercy must give way. I mean, we are kind of a new startup for 4 p.m., but the day may come where we will have more and more traditions, or perhaps you go to a different church or country where, where traditions are great, are beautiful, are wonderful, but will that become something that is so important that mercy gets excluded and people who want to seek God can't? I think that is something that the Pharisees do not see, but it's happening so much in their culture and perhaps in ours. Or even right now, perhaps for us as kind of a starter at 4pm, the better question is to ask, how can we express mercy more and more? What will we do? How will we bend our backs so that people will get to know Jesus and people may come to know the Lord of the Sabbath? We'll see, we've seen briefly the hearts of the kind of Pharisees, but Jesus wants to pause and he wants to show his own heart to us the heart of the Lord himself. Look at verse 15 to 23. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. No, what's happening? In, in that context, while the opponents of Jesus, they want to kind of raise themselves high up amongst the rest of the Jews, they will use their power to put down the rest so that they remain high up there. In fact, even to kill Jesus. Jesus did that. Opposite, isn't it? He kind of moved off. He redrew. He used his power to show mercy. He seeks the delight of God. And 
he refused for people to kind of keep praising him in their way. No, the Pharisees would die for people to go around and these are the great people. And Jesus says, be healed and don't tell anyone. No, Matthew quoted Isaiah 42 in this passage as he goes on to explain about Jesus. He says this, Here is my servant whom I've chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. This is a revealing slowly of the heart of Jesus, right? The, the Lord of the Sabbath, who come here as the servant of the Lord. He's the one that God loves. He works the power of the Messiah, not the way the Pharisees would want him to, but the way that pleases the Lord and reveals mercy. What the, what the Pharisees put great yoke on the people, Jesus is the one that Isaiah promised. If you look on, who is powerful, but he is full of gentleness. Look at what Jesus is, according to Isaiah. Jesus is one where a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice to victory. In his name, the nations will be able to put their hope. No, a reed is kind of a very fragile thing, and uh, it's easy to break it, but... um, Jesus will not break it. And, and it's kind of smoldering wick. It's kind of it's going to smolder, but Jesus will not put off and snuff it out. In fact, He will keep them, the humble and gentle Lord, He will keep them till He brings victory. He will not reject the down and out that the Pharisees would totally kind of not look at. But Jesus will bring them in and He will care for them. And there is no one too lowly for Jesus. That is the kind of heart that Jesus has, the Lord, that God has. Surely everyone is going to follow this Jesus, isn't it? Would you? Well, not everyone. Look on. The miracles that were going to come in will reveal the hearts of the Pharisees even more from 22 to 35. Now, as Jesus continues to reveal his mercy to the vulnerable, he even starts to heal a demon possessed. So much so that all who look at Jesus' miracles, they were kind of astonished. They kind of try to feed Jesus in a box. They can't. They say, can we feed him the Pharisees? Uh, no, he's against the Pharisees. Put him as a good teacher. Well, he's doing miracles. Put a doc, no, not doctors. Could he be the son of David that God has promised? Well, they haven't said he is, but they kind of like, ah, oh, you can't put a category. They have to think, who is Jesus? But just as they kind of ask this question, the Pharisees appear and they snap it in again. Look at verse 24. They said, Well, it's only by Baalzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. By now, you look at the Pharisees, right? They kind of have no evidence that Jesus has evil intention. They can't really rebut Jesus' word. They only have is kind of blanks, like blanks to shoot. They try to shoot, whatever, make a lot of sound to kind of get everyone to stop thinking. And they are willing to even declare that Jesus, well, they didn't really look at, say Jesus, right? What did they say to him? This fellow, this fellow drives out demons by the prince of demon. No, while the bewildered crowd, is kind of, they're trying to open their mind, trying to work out who is Jesus. This guy starts shooting blanks in and say, he is with the devil. If Jesus could not be tamed, he would have to die. Now, anyone who disagree with them are wrong 
And so, they are even willing to attribute God's divine goodness that heals His people and put it to the devils. And the Pharisees responded to Jesus this way. You start to kind of review the heart of people who are not just accidents. They kind of think really hard in their response to Jesus and it's not good. But so incongruent was kind of the Pharisees' rebuttal to Jesus. Jesus kind of speak again and you know it's not going to get better for the Pharisees. You kind of have at least two or four ways, depending on how you look at it, where he thinks that what you just say don't make sense. Look at the first one, verse 25. Jesus says, you know what? Every kingdom that's divided will be kind of undone. This is a common knowledge about kingdoms. A kingdom that's divided, it can't stay. So that's the first thing. But second, Jesus says, this common knowledge actually applies to Satan's kingdom, isn't it? It's still standing right now. So, if Satan drives out Satan, verse 26, he is divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? But the very fact that Satan's kingdom is still standing strong at that time. And the third rebuttal, it goes on. You know, there are obviously Jews who came to have done exorcism before. Jesus is not the first one who cast out demons or people have kind of made a fuss about it because somebody has got to deal with the demons. So they have their own exorcists. But if the Pharisees start to attribute exorcism to Satan, they are actually implying that this is what is happening to their own exorcist who is trying to help the people, isn't it? It says, if this is what you are saying, I tell you what, your own exorcists, your own people will come and judge you for saying that because that is not what they are doing. So there you have it. And Jesus flipped the point, flipped the coin right now. He says, but if, but if it's not from Satan, and if it is from God, if it is by the Spirit of God, verse 28, that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. No, Jesus is here to kind of show mercy on the bruised reed and the smoldering reek. But more than that, Jesus is here to say that I'm actually showing you that I'm bringing in the kingdom of God. In fact, I'm going to do it by overcoming the kingdom of Satan. That's what, it's a visual thing that Jesus is doing. That as he kind of casts out or heal a demon possessed, he's showing visually that this is what he has come to do. He has come to usher the kingdom of God, he's going to kick out the kingdom of Satan. And Jesus is here to tie up Satan, the strong man, and plunder his kingdom. Because that's the picture he's, he's picturing in, in his action of releasing the demon possessed. Then Jesus turned towards the crowd with the Pharisees among them and says this in verse 30. Look at verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. It's kind of a difficult passage, isn't it? Or a heavy one. But what Jesus is pointing, there's no neutrality when it comes to relating to Jesus. You're either with Him or you are not with Him. And we see that explained in that troubling 31-32. Look at these two verses. 
What's the blasphemy against the Spirit that will not be forgiven or that anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven? Well, this is a kind of a difficult ver- two verses, but we have to look at it in what the context is actually doing, what is happening. Jesus says that every kind of sin and blasphemy actually can be forgiven. If we come to Jesus and we truly repent, He can and He will forgive us. There's no sin too light that does not need forgiveness. There's no sin that's too heavy and too great that the power of Jesus and the blood of Jesus cannot forgive. Because such such was the ability of Jesus to forgive that even the greatest murderers could be forgiven. In fact, the Bible has one, isn't it? One who is called Saul the Pharisee, who became Paul the Apostle. He said this. Let me just read to you what Paul says as he kind of re- 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 reflect on his attempt to imprison Christians. He cast votes for Christians to die. But he says this, 1 Timothy 1, Paul says this, Here's a trustworthy saying that deserve full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. He's not kind of being kind of cordial or kind of being humble. He's saying, you know what? My hands have the blood of God's saints. But God forgives me. Every kind of sin and slander, even words spoken against the Son of Man, can be forgiven. And Paul says this in the same breath in that same passage in First Timothy. But let me read to you what he says in verse 13. He says this, Even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. All sins can be forgiven if they come to Jesus. But what about the blasphemy against the Spirit? What sin is that? I think this is it. It's the terribly rebellious and persistently unrepentant heart. Let me say that again. It's a terribly rebellious and persistently unrepentant heart. Persistently unrepentant heart. It's a heart that blasphemes against the work of God's Spirit. The Spirit reveals good when Jesus healed the demon possessed. And the rightful response to give glory to God. But instead the Pharisees, they say, nah, this is not God's work, this is the work of Satan. For the sake of their hatred against Jesus, they will credit God's work and the work of the Spirit of God to be that of Satan and the devil. They are willing to embrace evil if they can kill Jesus. They are willing to embrace evil as good. And unlike Paul and all, this was not done out of ignorance. It was done as they are growing in their knowledge about Jesus. Their hatred against Him grows and their rebellion against and the blasphemy against Spirit builds up. We'll see a full-blown blasphemy against Spirit at the end when we reach the end of Matthew. But we have to hold our horses because this is frightening enough. At chapter 12, this blasphemy against Spirit is not kind of a specific curse word or swear word. No, people have used that all the time. It's not a specific curse word that you have said and from then on you are eternally condemned. But it's not. It's not that. It is the heart that grows in rebellion even as it grows in knowledge of God. In fact, it could well go the other way, right? That, you know, the more the gospel shines in their heart, the more they hate the gospel and they want to kind of block off the light the more the gospel shines at their need to be clear, the more they want to get rid of their light so that no one sees what is inside. They do not want forgiveness. The only thing they want is to get rid of the one who 
calls people to forgiveness. And that's what exactly we saw in verse 22, 23. While the rest marvel at Jesus, the Messiah, or possibly the Pharisees condemn him to be from Beelzebub with no other reasons than to want to get rid of him. And all these are the issues of heart as Jesus continues in verses 31 to 37. In fact, look at 33. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruits. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. You know, our, our response to Jesus as we grow in our knowledge of Him reflects the condition of our heart. Our response to Jesus as we kind of grow in our knowledge of Him reflects the condition of our heart. Some people will grow to love Jesus more. Some people will grow to hate Jesus more. Perhaps that's why Jesus said earlier on that we shouldn't throw the pearls to the pigs lest they come and bite us back. Because the heart is like a storehouse. We, 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 we store and we draw our thoughts, our morals, our words, our actions, everything from our hearts. Right? For someone, you know, like me who can't really play the piano, it'll make no difference if you kind of give me a terrible broken piano or you give me that 2.5 million dollar Stanway model Zach of Lennon that he composed the, 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 the song Imagine. Right? It doesn't matter which one you give me, they sound the same to me because within me, I don't have that tune. And out of me, I can't play it for you. Jesus tells us that our mouth draws his words from within our hearts, especially the careless words that are spoken. You know, for the Pharisees, Jesus, in fact, John has said this earlier on, you brood of vipers, children of poisonous snakes. The poisonous words that come from you was not because of the surrounding. It comes up from inside you as it comes forth from your mouth. First 35 says, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. How is your and my heart doing? Now as we pause here for a moment, let the words of Jesus kind of warn or remind us of the dangerous consequence of a heart they calls evil good and good evil. And a heart that does not want to repent of sins. You know, I think it's a good time, even as we are, if we are professing Christians or not, to examine our hearts. In fact, listen to kind of the callous words that we speak and examine them before the Lord. You know, those times where we kind of have words that slip out because of stress, because at work, at family, at home, you know, under stress, ah, sorry, this is not, kind of out of character. You know what? That is very in character. Those words that we say when we are stressed, that's exactly who we are inside. It's not, ah, sorry, it, that was not what I meant. That is what you meant. It's just that your kind of security system kind of blinked a little bit and it came out. Examine our hearts and listen to the careless word we speak or even mutter under our breath. And let us also be warned another thing about false teachers in the world who will carefully craft their religion and their teachings. It seems to be from God, but it totally opposes 
God. It's carefully crafted. They study scriptures carefully so that they can fool others. And there are many even in the New Testament time. Let me just read one for you that Paul gave us in the second letter of Timothy. He says this, Their teachings were spread like gangrenes. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Well, that's the early church, isn't it? That's just the beginning. As we look around our generation and our churches or our world, there'll be those who carefully craft their traits so they can oppose the scriptures and elevate or benefit themselves. I think it is a warning from scriptures in the first century and it has not ceased even in our time. You know, some will speak against the son because they do not know him, so they kind of say wrong things about Jesus. But there will be others who will say things against the son because they do not want him. Let me say that again. Some will say things against the son because they kind of do not know him. But there will be some who say things against the son because they do not want him. Again and again, we see the hearts of the Pharisees being revealed, isn't it? Even after Jesus healed the demon-possessed, the Pharisees, the scribes, you know what? They kind of say this, Jesus, can you do a miracle? Can you do a sign to prove yourself? It's a very eerie echo of Matthew 4. You know what happens in Matthew 4? Matthew 4, Jesus was tempted and the Satan said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. They have just seen the miracles of Jesus and they come to Jesus, If you are who you say you are, show us a sign. You see the eerie echo that kind of echoes at chapter 12 that is found in chapter 4. But Jesus refused to dance to their music. None will be given except the sign of Jonah, referring to his own death and his resurrection. And at last week's chapter 11, where Jesus kind of condemned the Jewish towns, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, if you remember that. Now in chapter 12, 39 to 42, Jesus says, the Gentiles, the men of Nineveh, the queen of South, they would condemn this generation because they refused to repent and turn to Jesus. Jesus declares that their heart will go from bad to worse because they refuse to receive Jesus in their hearts. They, as they reject Jesus and even rebel against Jesus, the final condition of such hearts will get worse than when it was before. Like a kind of last week we had like rotten a rotten mandarin orange that's not taken out from your box of orange that we had. The rest kind of start to rot very quickly. Verse thirty forty five. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. And with that, we close to the last verses whereby the Lord starts to review the kingdom people's heart. How does kingdom people's heart actually look like in contrast to the Pharisees' heart? Look at 46 to 50 with me. Early on, the author Matthew recorded just now a long interaction of Sabbath to review the hearts of the Pharisees and then a brief look at the heart of the Lord. Then now, he has gone a long interaction initiating initiated by miracles and signs to reveal the hearts of the Pharisees. And then Matthew concludes with a brief look at the kingdom people's hearts. So look at verse 46 onwards. Let me read to us this last portion. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, 
Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. And look at verse 50. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Well, Jesus just grabbed this teaching opportunity and he starts to speak that whoever does the will of God the Father is his brother, his sister, his mother, his family. These are the people who will enter the kingdom of God even as he kicks out the kingdom of Satan. No, Jesus is not so much as kind of degrading his family, but he's actually raising up those who are willing to come to him to acknowledge who he really is and be saved by him that you will be my family. If I am the Messiah and you are my family, guess where you will be? You will not be in the kingdom of Beelzebub. You'll be in the kingdom of God. So how is your and my heart doing? How is the center of our being responding to Jesus as we follow Jesus and the Pharisees in Matthew 12? I think it's important to let us see the importance that we need to examine our hearts and the overflowing actions and words and response that we actually have. Not just when we are in good days, but especially on our bad days. How is our heart doing? You know, an unchecked heart can be very deceitful. It can give us kind of false assurance, cause us to embrace evil as good and give us plenty of excuses. Has your heart done that before? Mine has, to kind of give you excuses when we have done wrong. It can make us feel religious thinking we are heading to heaven when we are heading to hell. Therefore, it's crucial that we must regularly search and recognize any unrepentant sins in our hearts. We must recognize that we must do all we can to repent of sin. We must recognize who is Jesus as He revealed Himself last week and not who we kind of designed Him to be. So let me close with just um, a quote. You know the Puritans um, in the earlier centuries, they are known to be good heart doctors, spiritual heart doctors. Let me just close with um, one of Jonathan Edwards' famous resolutions in modern language um, by Griffith. So let me just read one of his resolution for Christians. This is what he says to himself every week. Resolution 68. Resolved to confess honestly to myself all that I find in myself, whether weakness or sin. And if it's something that concerns my spiritual health, I will also confess the whole case to God and implore Him all needed help. That is a realist who is a Christian. And even more so, if we are someone who has not known the Lord, the Lord invites because He will not break a broken, uh, a smoldering frog, uh, a smoldering um, wick, He will not um, kind of put it off. Or rig that is kind of, He will not break it off. So let us just commit this time to, to our Lord and a good time for us to examine our hearts in front of Him as well. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.